We read scripture this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We'll begin reading at verse 13 in chapter 4, as chapter 4 and 5 overlap a bit. So we'll begin reading from chapter 4, verse 13, and then we'll read through chapter 5. We hear the inspired and fallible word of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest to your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is unto God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 as our text this morning. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask ourselves the question this morning, what gives us reason to get up in the morning? What is it that is our motivation to do the work that is set before us every day? What's your motivation for living life? Paul says here in this passage, there's only one thing. There's only one thing that motivated him in everything that he did, and he uses the term that constrained him, and that is the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the one thing that motivated him to do everything that he did. And this is in the context of Paul being criticized. He's being criticized for the fact that his motive is wrong. Some are thinking, well, his motive is money. His motive is fame. His motive is glory. He wants merely the praise of men. And as Paul is coming under attack for his motivation, Paul now says, no. What lies behind the whole of my ministry, what lies behind the whole of my life is simply this, my love for Christ and what Christ did for me. And that love constrains me so powerfully that I live not for self, but I live for him. That's the beautiful truth that takes hold of us. A man has written, unless one's heart is hard as iron, thinking on Christ and what he did at Calvary, cannot help but make that one devote his life to the service of his Savior. Self-denial is the practice that lies at the heart of true religion. Denial of self is a painful element of the Christian walk in life. Romans 7 talks about the painful nature of that, the battle that's taking place, and the fact that the good that I know I ought not do, the good that I know I ought do, I don't do. And the evil that I know I shouldn't do, that I do. And I need to deny myself those pleasures, those temptations. All the doctrines of Scripture emphasize the greatness and the glory of God and the humility, the humble place that God has given to mere men. As we stand before the doctrines of grace, then there has to be two responses in our lives. How great God is, how small and insignificant I am. What is it about the doctrines of God's grace and human depravity 
that stir our hearts. And is it not that realization that I'm pricked? And isn't that a marvelous wonder that God uses his word to prick us and through that pricking, he stirs us up to a greater adoration of his glory and awareness of our own weakness. God works in us the awareness that I'm so given to self-indulgence. I'm so given to self-admiration, self-satisfaction, self-determination. I'm so prone to live for myself. And as we hear the glorious gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ preached, we're smitten. And we rejoice in that smiting. That's the marvel of God's grace. Where self-esteem is crushed, esteem for God's greatness and God's glory is magnified. The sacrament of baptism, as we saw it administered this morning, is a picture of that marvelous love of God in Jesus Christ. The love by which Jesus made himself to be one who was guilty of sin, even though he had no sin. And the wonder by which he took upon himself then the full punishment that we deserved in order that we might be righteous. As verse 21 points out, for he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We go forth as those who confess the wonder of that work of God on our behalf. I have been baptized. And being baptized, not just with water, but with the precious blood of the Son of God. And this means then that my life is controlled by that wonder. How is that evident? It means every single day I'm thinking about what Jesus did for me. Every single day. I'm living my life in connection with that wonder. This is what God did for me. This is what Jesus did for me. When I look at myself and I see how unworthy I am, I hear others speaking perhaps about me, and I'm inclined to despair, then I think of, no, my Lord loved me with such a great love that he gave his life for me. My value and my worth is not based on what I can do, what others think of me. It's based on what my Lord did for me. We need those reminders. Every day we need those reminders of the love of God in Jesus Christ. We receive those reminders through the sacraments, through the preaching. We were raised to understand and believe this for the most part. But tragically, do we live in the experience of it as we ought? Our desire, beloved, is that the acknowledgement of the love of God in Jesus Christ becomes so much a part of our day-to-day life that it constrains and controls the whole of our life. And that's what we look at this morning. Constrained by the love of Christ. Noting, first of all, his death. Secondly, his love. And finally, the selflessness. That if one died for all, we read in verse 14 and then verse 15, that he died for all. What is death? That's the first thing that we face this morning. What is death? According to the Bible, death is the punishment of God upon sin. Before sin, there was no death. The verdict of God from the very beginning was the soul that sins, that soul shall die. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Now the point of our text here is that Jesus died. So that raises questions. The soul that sins must die. Well, why did Jesus die? Was Jesus a sinner? 
And we delve into the truth of Jesus and we know he's very God. He's without sin. He doesn't know sin as, again, verse 21 points out. He knew no sin. Why is it then that Jesus, who knew no sin, had to die? And the answer is, though he had no sins of himself, he took your and my sin on himself. He made himself guilty of your sin and my sin. By lovingly taking on himself the sins of all of his people, he represented then God's elect, those whom the Father had given him. And he stood in their place as the substitute for their punishment, their wrath. So that Jesus died for the sake of those whom he represented. But he didn't just die. He descended into hell. The horror of hell again is the just judgment of God, a righteous God, on sin. And Jesus took that hell upon himself in the place of all those whom he represented. He entered into the horror of hell to make the payment that was required by Almighty God to set his people free. What's the fruit of that? Everyone for whom he died, they're free. Though they were dead, now they live. Every single one for whom he died and for whom he stood in the place, they're saved. And they're given the joy of everlasting life. Well, that moves us then to ask the question, why the emphasis here on all then? When it says that he died for all, and that is repeated even in verse 15, that he died for all. It can't refer to all men head for head, because then it would mean that there's no more hell for the whole of mankind. If Jesus died for everyone and took upon himself that punishment that they deserve for hell, and he did that for every single person in the whole wide world, then nobody is going to hell. There's only heaven. There's only joy. There's only salvation for the whole human race. That can't be, because that would contradict the clear teaching of the Bible that not all men are saved and not all men go to heaven. There clearly is such a place as hell, and tragically, there are many who go to hell. In the context of the chapter, and in the context here of our text, it's evident Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And Paul is trying to impress upon that church of Corinth an understanding of the marvelous wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And as he's tried to impress upon them that wonder and that joy, he's saying, Jesus did not just lay down his life for some people here, some people there maybe, just a couple in the congregation. He gave his life for all of his people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the marvel for which he did. Jesus died for every last one of his own. His elect children. Those children who reveal their election by the fruit of it. And what do they show? They believe in Jesus. They repent. They turn away from their sin. They know the joy of their salvation. So that even in the text itself, he's talking here. The all here are those who live not unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Not all men live for Christ. Who is it that will live for Christ? Those for whom Jesus died. Those who are the objects of his eternal election. The importance of this emphasis also is this. Some might be inclined, even within the congregation, to say, well, I understand that Jesus died for others, but how could he die for me? I know myself. I know the horror sins that I've committed. I know the travesty of my life. 
and might be inclined then to say, but I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be covered by that blood. Jesus died for those who were unworthy. And that's the emphasis of the passage. He died for those who had done nothing to make themselves any better than anyone else. Those for whom Jesus died are now dead to sin. Previously, they had been dead in sin. Now that's changed. And we understand here the significance and the importance of prepositions to understand them correctly as they're set forth in the scriptures here. Those who were dead to sin, those who were dead in sin have now been transformed. Before they were dead in sin, they could do no good. All they could do was sin. Now, by Jesus' death, they have been made dead to sin. Now, what does that mean? It's talking spiritually. We're not talking about a physical death. The significance is this. Those who were dead in sin, given over to sin, given over to the pursuit of the lust of the flesh, experienced a wonder. Jesus died for them. And through his death, he took their sin upon himself and he paid the price of the wrath of God with the result that they're now alive. And as those who are alive now, they are dead to sin. That is, sin doesn't control them anymore. Before, sin controlled them. Now sin no longer controls them. Christ's death works something that's real. It works a marvelous wonder that we can experience today and every day of our life. Romans 6 talks about this in verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God takes us from hopeless to living. What a wonder. Continuing in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. The ungodly, unregenerated individual lives in such a way that they don't have a right to life. And they don't have a right to salvation. And their whole life is lived for themselves and in the pursuit of death. The child of God now, having been transformed by a wonder of Christ's sacrifice, now is made alive. And that child of God now is not only crucified with Christ, but he's raised with Christ. He has a life now that's from above. Jesus takes hold of him and Jesus washes him, cleanses him from all his sins. And then Jesus incorporates him into communion and fellowship with the living God. Jesus washes away our sins not only, but then he also works the wonder of his spirit in our hearts. We, re we rejoice in what Jesus does for us and what Jesus is working in us. That's the wonder here that the apostle here is talking of. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The believer, regenerated, confessing the work of Christ on his or her behalf, knows life. And it's a life that's from above. And now being made alive, his or her life is radically different. Instead of living for self, we now live for Christ. That's what the passage here is emphasizing. 
That new life now is pulsing within you. And in the context, the apostle is talking about death. And he's talking about the joy, the victory of death. Though you die, you will live. That's the wonder. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Because through Jesus Christ, we have life, a life that's from above. Now God made the death of Jesus Christ to have that effect on the hearts and lives of his children. God ordained that Adam would be the representative head of the whole human race. Adam's sin would affect the whole human race. In Adam, all would die. In Christ, God would work a wonder. In Christ, God would take not the whole human race, but a portion of it, the whole of the redeemed human race, and he would renew them. He would restore them through Jesus Christ. And so God entrusted to Christ those who were his own, his elect. God did not put him in charge of the whole human race, but he made him the representative head of the elect. And Jesus now took those individuals and he laid his life down for them. The us are God's children. We are those who rejoice to be numbered among the elect. Our sins applied to him, his righteousness applied to us. So that we who were dead in sin are now dead to sin. Now why doesn't he just say that? Why does he continue and say that we are also then alive to Christ? One reason would be this. While the child of God is going through life, there's that constant battle against the flesh. And there's that constant battle against selfishness. And so we need to know both sides of it. Not only that I am dead to sin, that sin no longer controls, it no longer is directing me on the way that leads to hell, but that positively I am alive in Christ. And therefore the victory that I experience over temptation is because of that wonder. The powers of sin, alive yet within us, are powerful, but they no longer can control us. That which controls us is the life of Jesus Christ, the new regenerated life in him. So that sin principally is dead within us. Now some days it seems as though that sin is going to conquer us. Some days it seems as though temptation is overcoming us. We cry out for mercy and we're reminded of who we are and the wonder of God's grace. We're going to put on a whole new body. We walk by faith, not by sight. By sight, the battle's being lost. By sight, we would say everything's in vain. But by faith, we lay hold on Christ and we see the victory through him. Salvation in Jesus Christ means I'm a participant in his death and in his resurrection. And that's the wonder of baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal that Christ shed his blood for me. He died on my behalf. And now he takes me and he incorporates me into Christ. He brings me into that life that's from above and gives me to know that wonder. The result of this, beloved, is this. No man can conclude, in me dwelleth no good thing, and then continue to live for himself. God works by his spirit humility. 
God works the confession. In me there dwelleth no good thing. I see my sin. I see my unworthiness. God works that wonder by his grace. But when the truth of my sinfulness and my unworthiness enters into my being, I cry out. I cry out with Job, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, verse 6. I acknowledge my sinfulness. While man's self-esteem is crushed, what happens? His esteem for his Lord is made all the greater. And he acknowledges that though I am a sinner, though I am nothing, Jesus is everything. Jesus is the one now through whom I live. And beloved, this becomes the test, really, of the life of the child of God, does it not? How low is self? How high is God in my heart and in my life? And how am I living in a manner that reflects that? Almost every moment of the life of the child of God involves that test. And that's the point of the apostle here. The explanation for the whole of the life of the child of God is this. He died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live for themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. And the power of that, beloved, is this. In Christ's death, we see the wonder of God's love. And so secondly, we look at that, the love. Notice the love of Christ. Within the wonder of the triune God, there exists a love we know that is the origin and standard of all love. God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is knit together in perfect communion and perfect fellowship. The Father loving the Son from all eternity and showing that love. God dwells not only in perfect love within his own being, but God determined that he would take to himself a people who were dead in sin. He would work a wonder to make them dead to sin, and he would work in them his love so that he could bring them into fellowship and communion with him to all eternity. He would set on them his everlasting love. And so in time, God gave Jesus Christ. And God gave to Jesus Christ his people so that Jesus could give his life for them. That love of God was seen so powerfully in that God gave his own son. We know that the essence of love is to give. God gave his own son. And then, what did Jesus do? The love of God in Jesus Christ was seen so powerfully in that Jesus gave himself for those who he loved. That love of Jesus Christ so powerful that it drove him to the cross. It drove him to take upon himself hell itself. It was an unending, eternal love that knew no limits. Jesus was filled with a love for his Father and a love for those whom the Father had given him that he was moved to do whatever the Father willed. And he did that. He took upon himself then the horror of the wrath of God. What was his motivation? Love. And that's the point of the apostle here. For the love of Christ. That love of Christ is so powerful, so wondrous, that that love of Christ constrains us. It takes hold of us. You've died to sin, and that enables you to live. And we live unto Christ. And so the apostle says, don't let sin reign. Sin isn't 
any longer having the power. Yield yourself to God. Live out of the power of His grace. You're alive now spiritually. And you're to show forth His praise. You're to do all to the glory and honor of Jehovah God. And that shows itself then in your and my life. And that there are two goals. Two goals every single moment for everything that we do. Deny self and love God. That's the whole of my life. Every single morning I get up and I need to deny myself, I need to walk in love toward my God. And so we live with intention. There's a reason why we do everything that we do. That which lives in my consciousness and in yours every single day is the wonder of the love of God as that love was shown to me in Jesus Christ. And that love moves me. It moves me powerfully. It moves me like nothing else in the whole world can move me. It moves me to put down, to reject, to kill my old nature and my own desires. Matthew 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus taught. If you love me and you're going to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And those are the only two options. Either we live for self or we live for Christ. And again, we face that question. For whom am I living? Am I living for myself or am I living for Christ? Which is most evident in my life? And every single decision I make is made in connection with this wonder. How am I showing the love of God in my life? How am I reflecting the fact that God loved me in Jesus Christ? The perspective of this text is this. You know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And the apostle even makes it stronger. You all know the wonder of that love in Jesus Christ. As he talks now to the congregation of the church of Jesus Christ. You know an undeserved love. You know a great and glorious God who has taken hold of you and who has shown you that gift of his own son. And that grace of God causes that love to abound in your life so much that it's growing, it's constantly growing. And living in the consciousness of that love, there's a battle. There's a struggle that takes place in your life. Constantly, you're having to deny self and you're having to live unto Him. Every single day, you're aware of that love that He has for you. And that's the motivation. Now this is how powerfully the Apostle says, that love constrains. And so we need to unpack that idea. What does that mean, this love constrains? The word constrain has a lot of different meanings. The Greek makes it explicit in a number of different ways. And so we could use a number of different illustrations, but I'll use this one. A farmer is working his cattle. In order to work his cattle, he runs the cattle then into the pen, and then they go through a series of gates, and finally they get into the chute. Just one cow is able to fit in that chute, because that chute is tight. That cow is constrained now by that gate. And that gate holds him, that chute holds him, so that now the farmer can do whatever needs to be done. Gives him the shots, whatever is required to do. So that that cow is being held tightly, It's being protected from itself so that it can't hurt itself while these things take place. But also, out of love now, the farmer is doing things to this cow that are good for its well-being. They're going to help it. 
The knowledge of God and his love in Jesus Christ constrains us. That is, it holds us tight. It keeps us safe. And it gives us to know the wonder of his care for us and his love for us. Now, sometimes we use the word restrain. It's important that we just understand the subtle difference between that. One who's restrained is fighting against often that confinement. He's restrained, yes, but he's, he's fighting against it. He doesn't appreciate it. Whereas one who's constrained is one who willingly walks into that narrow way, willingly puts himself in that situation more fully, and as such then is committed to pursuing the will of God. The apostle here says, the love of Jesus Christ causes me willingly to be held within the liberty of his everlasting arms. I don't view that as limitation. I don't view it as restraining me so that I'm fighting against it constantly. But I understand the wonder of it. He loves me. And now in love, he's drawn me close and he holds me tight. And he keeps me from hurting myself, from pursuing wrong ambitions and wrong desires. And he works in me a sorrow when I do that. And he's directing me and keeping me so that I do what's right in his sight, so that I live unto him. And I rejoice in that wonder. I rejoice in the goodness of my God to hold me in the power of his love and to keep me in his firm grasp. The apostle talks about the fact that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, that Jesus Christ is holding us and that bond is such that no one can pluck us out of his hand. Now that's the picture here in general that God here gives to us. We hear Christ through the preaching of the gospel. We hear him through the sacrament of baptism. We see and witness the wonder of his love for us. And our confession is that he has taken hold of me. And that love that he's shown to me is such a powerful wonder in my life that it constrains me, it works in me, that willingness to live unto him. I am his slave. I willingly submit to his lordship. And I know that everything he's doing in my life is for my good and for my salvation. Again, if we think of our lives, either your life is about self or it's about God. Sin is described as selfishness. And we understand that. And to make that explicit, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's Isaiah 53, 6. What is sin? It's doing my own thing. It's going my own way. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2 expose the disgusting reality of our generation. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's sin. Sin says, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to love myself. And again and again, the Bible says, that's the way of bondage. That's the way of death. That's the way of hell. No one else is going to care for you. Your nature is self-centered. Now, as we're walking according to self, there's nothing that inspires hatred like suggesting to a sinner that they're wrong. And we know that. Someone says to me, you're doing something you ought not do. Our flesh rises up. We will defend ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. 
And that shows itself in arrogance, doesn't it? How do I feel spiritually, physically, emotionally? If everything that's happening to me, I view from my own perspective, then I live for myself, and it's all about me. We see this so clearly in our children, do we not? The snacks come out, and right away it's a me-first attitude. Everybody wants what's good for them. They don't care about other people. And then that grows into young people, into teenagers, into adults who insist on everything their way. They don't want to think about others. They're not thinking about their parents. They're not thinking about others whom God puts on their pathway. It's all about me. To live for self is to be motivated by how something is going to affect me and my self-centered goal. Paul says here, henceforth, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. And by that he admits, that's the way I was. Henceforth, that is before. I was living for myself. I built a reputation on who I was. I built a reputation on my zeal for Jewish orthodoxy. I was living for Saul, and I was living for my own righteousness. But he says, that's all behind me now, by a wonder of God's grace. My priorities are totally different now. And that's because of not anything of myself. It's because of the love of God in Jesus Christ. God's love took hold of me and the love of God in Jesus Christ so constrained me that it now controls the whole of my life and everything that I do now, I do with that motive and with that desire. Now he sees himself small, insignificant, as nothing. And he sees that Christ is that which is important in his life. Constrained by the power of love. A love that gave himself for me. To live for Christ is a life that pursues what Christ pursues. We desire that Christ's will be done. We desire that Christ be exalted in our lives. We think of John the Baptist, I must decrease in order that he increase. Constantly, we keep Christ before him. And we walk by faith, not by sight. That results, beloved, in a selflessness. And that's the, really the main point here of the text. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Every part of your and my life is to be directed toward God and his glory. We've been freed from the bondage of thinking only of self. No man can ever rise to noble things who is self-concern and always involved in self-interests. The thinking of self is bondage. And the monster of self is constantly demanding that he be served. That challenges the dominion of Christ in every aspect of my life. It opposes every devotion of time, energy, and love to God. What a strange war, beloved, that is won by feeling again painful blows to self. That's the wonder of the Christian religion. The love of Christ humbles. It drives to repentance. And in that, the child of God rejoices. The child of God knows a wonder of God's grace. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount in a very striking way. You children remember this. When Jesus was talking in Matthew 5, 29 and 30 about if our eye offends us, what should we do? What did Jesus say? Pluck it out. 
If your arm offends it, cut it off. And Jesus said it's way better to get into heaven without an eye or without an arm than to be facing all those temptations throughout your earthly life. Now that vivid language is not to encourage harm to self. It teaches this. Putting away self is essential to overcoming temptation. We could please for an easier solution. We would say, God, make it a little easier. But God reminds us, no. Saying no to temptation is going to be a shock to your whole system. It's going to be similar to plucking out your eye. It's going to affect the whole of your being. And we say, but Lord, make it easier. And God says, no, there's no other way. We try in desperation to find an easier way. Couldn't the cup that God places before us be a bit lighter? Think of Jesus in that regard. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Is this really what's required of me? That I have to completely deny myself and I have to die and go to hell for those whom thou hast given me? And God said, yes, there's no other way. And that's what God says to you and to me. There's no other way. Look to Jesus Christ. Deny yourself and live unto your Lord who died and rose again for you. You love Christ. That love for Christ is not something that you need to do. It's something you want to do. That's the wonder of God's work of grace in our hearts. The fact that I know my sin and I'm convicted by it is something that I'm able to be thankful for. I'm able to rejoice in God pricking me and God exposing my sin and my selfishness. And I'm able to see more fully the greatness of his glory and grace in my life. That love of God takes hold of you. It takes hold of me. And it moves us into his service. It constrains us to deny self and to live unto him. That's the thankfulness that God works by his grace. You children, why is it sometimes that your dad and mom maybe disciplining you, hold you really tight. You kick and you scream. You don't want to be held tight. But of love, they hold you tight. They don't want you to pursue your own will. They don't want you to do your own thing. They want to assure you of their love for you. And if you relax, you quit fighting against their hold, then you feel too, my dad, my mom loves me. The reason they're holding me so tight is because of their arms of love. And their constraint is to help me see Christ more fully, to put away my selfishness so that I live more fully unto him. Beloved, when God's presence is felt in your and my life, we feel his arms of love enfolding us. And we stand in awe at the wonder of that love. And what does it do? It radically changes my life and your life. It changes our pursuit. It changes our goals. We're not thinking about casual TV programs no more. We're not so concerned about what I can do on Sunday. We're not so concerned about how I live for myself now in my marriage. We're not finding joy and happiness in pursuing possessions for my own sake. The taking up of our cross as an intentional act by which we turn away from self and we turn to Christ works in us that wonder. God doesn't force that cross on it. God doesn't tie it on our back and strap it on us. God works in us so that we willingly take up that cross with joy and with thankfulness, confessing the wonder of God's grace, knowing that we're undeserving of it. And we rejoice in the wonder of Jesus 
taking that death blow on Calvary for me by which I've been set free from the bondage of self so that now I can live unto God. That love of Christ is portrayed in our text as not just something to admire, not just something to look at or to, from an intellectual perspective, try to understand. This love of God in Jesus Christ is a spiritual force in your and my lives. And again, Paul knew the wonder of that. He experienced Christ transforming his life and changing all of his priorities. Rather than be given now to self-indulgence and worldliness and all the sins that he previously enjoyed, Christ works now an impulse. He works a desire to keep his commandments and he stirs us up to live unto him. We rejoice, beloved, in that wonder that Jesus Christ went to Calvary he took upon himself the hell that we deserved. And now we confess, I am washed, I am cleansed, and I've been incorporated into the wonder of his love so powerfully that that love now constrains me to pursue his will and to live a thankful life of obedience. There's no greater power in all of history. This love of Christ is that which has accomplished marvelous wonders in the lives of God's saints. And this power doesn't diminish as one gets older. It isn't as though as Paul got older, he looked back. That love of Christ became more and more precious to him. And that's the confession, too, of the child of God. As he gets older, as he looks back and sees his sin all the more sharply, that love of Christ increases. And the shepherd's presence is for him his comfort. And what is that comfort? You will have no want. You'll have no lack. I'm with you. You have everything that you need now and to all eternity. Beloved, this constraining love is what not only moves Emma, but all of us to live unto him. And let that love move you to deep humility and confession of sin. Let that love move you to thankful obedience and let that love comfort you in all the trials that lie ahead. Confessing to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we rejoice in the marvelous wonder of thy work on our behalf and that continued work in us. Forgive us our selfishness and our self-seeking and cause that we might know the glorious constraint of Christ in our lives, a constraint of love by which the whole of our life is to be guided and directed to the glory and honor of thy name. That whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, or whatsoever we take up, our motivation might be to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen.